Welcome to the Art Stories Podcast. So there I was, standing in front of a group of strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos. A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out and she like smiles that all-American Nashville smile and she, she introduces herself, she shakes my hand, hey, I'm Taylor, hey, I'm the groom. We're bringing you true personal stories told in the Southern tradition and recorded in front of a live audience. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. I'm your host, Chris Kinsley. Growing up is hard to do. That's a universal fact we are all too familiar with. But along the way, there are certain rites of passage that once achieved and celebrated can serve to propel us on to the next. Well, today we're bringing you three such stories from our most recent event held this past Saturday where our theme was actually rites of passage, coming of age stories. Only each of these rites are completely unique to the storyteller. The one thing that unites them is that they all involve fathers and sons. This first one is from storyteller Bob Bird. I used to know things that I don't know anymore. I knew them when it mattered before a test. Now that it doesn't matter, if you want to know the area of a circle or when the Magna Carta was signed, you're going to have to ask somebody else. I don't know. Then there are the things that I will never forget simply because I did not know them when it mattered. It's unlikely I will ever again have the opportunity to answer those questions that I didn't have the answers for. So I take comfort in knowing now what I didn't know when it would have made a difference. I want to tell you about three examples. When I was in third grade in Fort Lauderdale, we were studying our multiplication tables, math. And my teacher, Mrs. Gaddy, out of the blue says, Bobby, who wrote Black Beauty? I had no idea who wrote Black Beauty, which made me mad because I should have known. Black Beauty was sitting on my bookshelf at home. Even though I'd never read it, it was there. When I got home, the first thing I did was go to the bookshelf and take it down. When I got to class the next day, I said, Mrs. Gaddy, I know who wrote Black Beauty. She said, well, it doesn't matter now. I don't need to know now. I needed to know yesterday. Now, this was not a test, but I felt like I'd failed. When I was in eighth grade, I had to participate, as well as everyone else in school, in the Scripps Spelling Bee. I made the mistake of winning at my classroom level, <laughs> which meant I had to compete against all the other classroom winners to see who would represent the school in the countywide bee. During the school spelling bee, classes were canceled. The entire student body was in the auditorium, just like this one. 
Chairs on the stage started out with 40 of us, but very soon it was winnowed down to just three, me and two other people. Each round, the words grew harder and harder until I was convinced the teacher was making them up. <laughs> they could not be in the dictionary. And all I could do was guess, and the sweat is pouring, and the stomach is cramping, and I'm trying not to throw up, and I keep guessing right. <laughs> and for the next round, I come up to the microphone ready for the next crazy made-up word, and the teacher says, Bob, your word is honor. This is a trick. I've just spelled onomatopoeia and Czechoslovakia. There's a trick. Now, I did not find out until later. She was trying to give all of us a break this one round because she saw us all sweating and cramping and trying not to puke. I didn't know that. I just knew this was a trick. And the only thing I could think of that was tricky about the word honor was the silent H. She thinks I'm going to forget that. I will not forget the H. H, 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 H. Honor. H. O N E R. And stunned, she says, that's wrong. And as I walked off the stage, I heard the whole student body clapping. But I could not tell, are they clapping because I failed? Are they happy I lost? Or are they clapping because I at least made it up to third place? Now, before I give you this next example, I need to give you a little bit of background information, but we're gonna get there, I promise, so just stick with me. We used to have a little dog named Buttons, just a little mutt. Buttons was the friendliest dog I'd ever seen, and I've known a lot of dogs. Buttons enjoyed nothing more than having her belly rubbed, which didn't always work out because it was more fun to get a belly rub than it was to give one. So half the time, she always would flop over on her back when someone entered the room, but half the time, they'd say, hey, Buttons, and keep on going. And sometimes we'd give her the belly rub, never as long as she wanted. Got better things to do. One night, Buttons died. I felt such remorse and such regret. All I could think of were all of the belly rubs I had not given her when she asked. All I could think of were all the times I had yelled at her for, for insisting on a belly rub, or for getting in the trash, or for chewing up a book report. And when I woke up the next morning, I wasn't 100% sure that that had just been a dream, because it was that real. I was not fully convinced that Buttons was still alive until I walked into the living room and she flopped over on her back. And I immediately got on my knees to scratch her belly. And from that day until she really died, every time she flopped over, there I was. And the last thing I did before getting up was lean over and whisper, I love you, Buttons. When she really died, the family was devastated. Even my dad cried. I had never seen him cry before. But I did not cry. I was the only one who didn't. I was sad. I was just as sad as everyone else. But they had more than grief to contend with. <laughs> They're now going through the same remorse and the same regret 
that I had gone through when she dream died, but they didn't get the resurrection that I got. There were no second chances for them like there was for me. And I realized I was onto something. Grief is a horrible thing to experience, but regret will kill you. And I was determined I would never again feel what I felt when she dream died and what they were feeling now. So whenever I left anybody, leaving the house to go to school, hanging up the telephone, whatever, the last thing I said was, I love you. Assuming, of course, that I did. <laughs> Didn't tell Miss Gaddy that. During my adolescence, my father and I fought all the time. Vicious, mean, knock-down, drag-out arguments. And after I had discovered this new philosophy of mine, we were having one of these terrible, terrible fights. And as I stormed off to my room, the last thing I did before I slammed the door was I said, I love you! <laughs> he turned to my mother, he said, that boy ain't right. Don't he know we're fighting? Every fight ended the same way, just like every non-fight ended. I soon, much sooner than I would have wanted, had an opportunity to test this new philosophy. My grandmother was unexpectedly killed in a car accident. No one could have foreseen this. No one could have prepared for it. And it was buttons all over again, especially for my mother and my aunt. It was their mom who was killed in the car crash. The whole family was sad, but once again, sad as I was, I didn't cry because all I had was grief. I had never left her without saying, I love you, Mima. And when I was a brat and disappointed her, I apologized before I left her. Even if I didn't feel apologetic, I did. And my mom and my aunt kept talking and beating themselves up. If only we had remembered to say, I love you that one more time. Why did we never resolve that argument we had those years ago? And I knew it works. When I was 20, my father had his third heart attack. The doctors told him that all of the benefits that had been gained with the open heart surgery following his second heart attack were gone. It was as if he had never had the surgery because he never quit smoking and he never quit drinking and he never did all the things he was supposed to do. His cardiologist promised him two things. One, he would have a fourth heart attack within the next six weeks to three months. Two, he'd never have a fifth one. Wouldn't have to worry about that. Now, Buttons and my grandmother, these were unexpected deaths. We knew that dad was living with limited time and it filled me with despair. And I think that is why I twisted and warped my magic spell. You see, up until now, here's how it worked. I told Buttons I loved her. Buttons died. I felt no regret. I told Memo I loved her. Memo died. I felt no regret. I forgot about this box. I tell people I love them, they die. Well, if I don't tell them I love them, they won't die. It was hard to start doing that 
Because by now, saying I love you before hanging up the phone or leaving the room had become second nature to me. I had to force myself not to say those three words. But it got easier in time, and I want you to know it worked. Because those six weeks went by and dad was still alive. And three months went by and he was still alive. An entire year after the doctor told him between six, months, or six weeks and three months, he was still alive, thanks to me. I hope he appreciated my sacrifice. <laughs> my dad loved to fish. I do not. I'm a big sissy. I don't like touching fish. I don't like touching bait. But I like spending time with my dad. So once in a while, I went fishing with him, and he pretended that it did not embarrass him when I was unlucky enough to catch one, and I would hold the pole up and dangle the fish in front of him so he could take it off the hook and then rebait it. I would have been happy with a baitless hook, just having fun in the water, but Dad insisted we do it right. I called him up in February and said, Dad, let's go fishing this weekend. He said, I'd love to, but I'm already gone with the buddy from work. There was a waiting list of people wanting to fish with dad, no lie. So I wasn't surprised. And he said, I'll tell you what, let's do it in March. We'll go for your birthday. And I said, okay. And just before I hung up the home, I almost said those three words I'm not allowed to say anymore. But I caught myself. I said, okay, see you next month. And two days later, on that fishing trip with his buddy, he had that fourth heart attack and died. Now you want to talk about some regrets. I'm the expert. When my grandmother died, my mom and my aunt beat themselves up because they didn't remember to say I love you when they had the opportunity. I didn't forget to tell my dad I loved him. I deliberately refused to tell him that I love him. And I still wrestle with that more than 30 years later. There are no do-overs in life. It is unlikely that I will ever again have the opportunity to give the right answers that I did not give when it mattered. So all I can do is try to find comfort in knowing now what I didn't know when it would have made a difference. Anna Sewell, H-O-N-O-R. I love you, Dad. And you can bet that lesson won't be forgotten again. I love you, Mom. Love you, neighbor. Love you, Mary. Bob Bird is a frequent contributor to NPR's Says You and is also the grand champion from the Alabama Tall Tales Storytelling Competition. You can check him out on Twitter at Storyteller underscore Bob. For our next storyteller, there was no love lost between him and his father. In fact, growing up for him actually meant figuring out how to fill in the gaps his dad left. 
Now, there is nothing too graphic or explicit in this story, but I do want to give a trigger warning for any who may have experienced abuse in their past. Here's storyteller Raquan Randall Bustamante. There are two people in the world whose names will always get an immediate reaction out of me, and they are both named Maurice. The first is my little brother, Reese, whom I love more than anything. The second is our father, Maurice Randall Sr., the man who I hated more than anything ever created. Now, I did not hate my father for the time in which he cheated on my mother and tore our family apart. I didn't hate him for the time daddy got drunk sometimes and put his hands on me. I did not hate my father for the time in which he put a gun to my head when I was 12, pulled the trigger, but moved the gun at the last moment. Nor did I hate my father for the time in which he put me in a cage when I was 12, with nothing to wear but an adult diaper and nothing to eat but oatmeal. I hated my father for the things he did not do. I hated my father because he did not protect me from my stepmother's daily beatings. I hated my father because he did not rescue me from my stepsister's games that are hard to talk about in counseling. I hated my father because he was not there for my first shave, my first date, my first girlfriend. To survive, I hated my father. I hated him when he took me from my home in Pickerington, Ohio, to the Ohio Hospital for Psychiatry. I hated him when I went into foster care, and I hated him when I was adopted and moved to Collier, Alabama. I had wished death on my father many times. But still, when he died from a drug dealing gone wrong in July 2013, I truly felt abandoned by my father. The drive there was an emotional one. I had to deal with things that I didn't think about for years then. I had to see family and other loved ones. But I forgot about that when I heard three distinct voices yelling my name because I got to see my three siblings. They looked at me as though I had an S on my chest and their looks of admiration validated the molestation and abuse that I had to go through years ago. I had fulfilled my mission as big brother. I had protected them. And for a moment, we forgot why we were sad until we went into the church and saw our father's casket. When I saw it, I realized that my mission was not over. I still had to protect my little brother from going in the cycle that his older brother, his father, and his grandfather had with alcoholism, drugs, and using women to feel no more pain. But I didn't worry about that. I just worried about holding my little brother so he could cry, messing up my three-piece suit, and scuffing my Stacey Adams. I would not see my little brother again until my graduation, a very proud moment for anyone who's graduated college. I was graduated with an advanced diploma. I was in the National Honor Society and the Spanish Honor Society. The only person who showed more pride than me was my little brother, Risi but he was proud because he was my little brother. He was so proud, in fact, that he kept reminding anyone who would listen that he was my little brother, even me. And I had to remind him I was there when he came out the oven. <laughs> that night, I spent the night at their hotel room. That marked the first time in six years that my mother's children had slept under the same roof at one time. I would not see my little brother again until November of 2015, when I decided to go up to Ohio to spend Thanksgiving with my family. My first thought when I got off the plane was, I was ill-prepared for a winter in Ohio. <laughs> I had to go to my papa's house and steal a jacket from him. 
And while there, I saw my Aunt Nick's car pull up, and so I went outside, and I heard a very distinct voice calling me Raekwon instead of Ray. The next thing I noticed was my little brother trying to knock me over while hugging me. I took him in, and I, I made sure that he let go first, which is protocol when hugging a child. And I realized my little brother was not so little anymore. At the age of 14, we were almost looking eye to eye. We spent that day talking about girls and, and sports and, and girls and, and sports. The thing I noticed that Reese would not let me out of his sight. It was almost as if, if I was gone for more than a few minutes, he would wake up and realize this was just another dream of Ray coming home. When I went to the store, he was there. When I went to pick someone up, he was there. Instead of sleeping in his bed, he slept on the couch with me. And I was okay with that. I was reminded of my mission that I proclaimed at our father's funeral when I heard him talking about drinking. Now, it would be hypocritical for me to tell anyone that they shouldn't drink. But he said that he wanted to drink because our dad did, and I told him that was the wrong decision. If you want to drink, wait till you're 21, and make sure that you do it on your own merit, your own decisions. Don't do anything because daddy did. And I left it at that. I would not return to Ohio until May of 2016. My cousin was graduating, and my birthday was four days after his graduation, so I figured kill two birds with one stone. That marked the first time in a decade that I had spent my birthday with the woman who'd given birth to me. Thankfully, everyone acted as though Ray had always been there. There wasn't a hoorah, it was just Ray's in the kitchen eating. You can go see him if you want to, I don't really care. But Reese still showed that, that sense of admiration, that feeling of awe, and I loved it because he was my little brother. We wrestled, we played video games, we fought, we argued, we did all those things that I should have done all those years ago if I had not left. Now, I had seen my little brother cry twice since our dad's passing, and both of them had to do with me leaving somehow. The first was when I made a cruel joke that his attitude is what kept me out of Ohio. I didn't mean it, but I'd already done the damage as he ran out of the room crying. The second time was on our way to the airport to drop me off. Now, I know the look of a little boy trying to hold in his tears, so him trying to hide it from me didn't really help. But I took it in and I tried to figure out something that I could say to that boy because I didn't know the next time I would see my little brother nor the next time he would see his hero. And so I told him, you are not your father's consequence. While you are his child, you are not his choices. Also, you are an amazing person. I love you, I believe in you, and I'm so, so proud of you. And I will be there for you always, no matter how small the obstacle is, because that's what big brothers are for. I kissed my little brother and I got on the airport. Nowadays, me and Reese talk maybe bi-weekly via Snapchat, texting, or calling. We talk about more than just girls now. As a sophomore in high school, he told me that he wants to be a football player. He also wants to attend OSU and be a football player there too. And so I told him, I don't know anything about football. The only thing I know about football is wide receiver and tight end, and that is just for the puns. <laughs> but I promise you, when you become a football player at OSU, I will make it my mission to see some of your games. My only request to you is, remind me to buy a coat. 
Thank you. Raquan Randall Bustamante is a writer and poet and aspiring comedian. You can find some of his writing on Instagram at Elise underscore Bustamante. Now, like me, you may be in need of a bit of a pick-me-up. So our last story actually comes from a father striving to be for his son everything Ray's dad wasn't. Here's storyteller Al Elliott. There's nothing like being a parent. Like, I've been a kid my entire life, and I can remember when I was younger, like most kids, I was thinking, I can't wait until I grow up. And when I become a parent, it's going to be so easy. All you have to do is, and I've learned that any statement that begins with the words, all you have to do is, is a false statement. To give you a little background, once upon a time, I lived in a two-parent home. It was me, my mother, my father, my older sister, younger sister, and the answer to a prayer, my younger brother. And up until I was in the third grade, this was normal. This was the norm. But uh, when I made it halfway through my third grade year, my mother and father decided that they would no longer be married. And we moved, we being my mother and her four kids, moved from Tuscumbia, Alabama, back to Bessemer, Alabama, in with her parents. And she thought the best course of action at this time was to get a part-time job, go to UAB at night, and become a nuclear medicine technologist, and raise four kids alone. So years later, when I became married and a parent, I thought, surely if my mom can raise four kids by herself and have a full-time job, I could raise a kid with a wife. All you have to do is, but in about three years, I figured out how wrong I was. My, uh, my ex-wife is originally from California, and uh, she decided that transitioning into a divorce lifestyle would be easier if she was closer to her roots, uh, which automatically put me into a type of transition. Uh, I was 31 years old. I was angry. Uh, I was upset. I was disappointed, but I also was the parent instead of a parent. The courts decided to award full custody of our then three-year-old son to me. So growing up most of my life without a male figure in the household, I was forced to try to be a man and raise a man. And like most men that find themselves in an impossible situation, I devised a plan. I actually devised several plans. Some of them turned out better than others. One of my plans um, was to not date anyone that already had a child. I figured that I had a child. It was enough for both of us. Didn't take me long to discover the hypocrisy of this ideology. <laughs> I wouldn't have dated someone like me. Um, but I really wanted to know, when do you include your child when you're dating? because I didn't want to have this revolving door of different women that may or may not work out with, right? So I, I decided to just ask my son. I said, would you want to know if I was dating someone? He said, no. <laughs> I said, well, what if I was about to marry someone? He said, if you are about to marry someone, tell me. 
That's okay. Sounds sounds fair. Uh, I also learned that uh, Nerf guns are more fun in twos than one. Um, I learned that the best way to learn how to play a video game is to eventually getting tired of getting beat to a pulp by one. Uh, that's how my son taught me how to play, and I realized I wasn't quite over my addiction to video games. Um, Around the time he was seven or eight years old, uh, he started to have favorite songs and favorite movies. And I thought it important for him to know that there are things called subliminal messages that are sometimes in music and movies that we listen to. And so I explained to him how these ideas can seep into our minds and kind of take control even if we don't know about them. Um, and this is also around the same time where he was discovering what cool was. So I, I subscribe to the theory that all kids are born cool. And sometimes they get to an age where they kind of forget and they sometimes spend the rest of their lives figuring out that they already were cool. So he was discovering that his cool was different from other people's cool and he started to question his cool. Well, being a man and being in this impossible situation, he devised a plan. And he asked me if I could give him subliminal messages. He didn't know that they were necessarily bad. And I guess he trusts his dad. So I said, well, what kind of subliminal messages would you want? He said, well, I don't know. I, I think I want to be cooler. I think I want girls to like me. I think I want to get a little better at video games. So I said, okay, um, let's make a list. Write down a list of some of the things that you would like to get subliminally. And I won't tell you what I'm reading from off of the list, but I'll sneak into your room at night sometime and actually read some of the things off the list to you and give you these subliminal messages. <laughs> well, after about a week or so of this, right, I, I, I don't know if it was working, but I do know that I noticed a different swagger in his swag, right? Like it was, it was, it was different now. Um, and, and, and time went on and, and we continued to do things together. Um, I, I would write songs sometimes, and he would start to write songs, and, and, and we all like just kept interacting with each other more as, as friends than as father and son. Um, and so one of the things that my plans to kind of guide my footsteps in this augmented parenting situation was how I would pattern my fathership. And so what I decided to do was to figure out how to live vicariously through him by being the dad I wished I'd had. And this ended up working out pretty good and it actually taught me that if he saw me as a resource, he could solve his own problems and then I could be along for the ride. Um, I also learned that there's a powerful force um, and, and, and we don't see it a lot of times, uh, portrayed in movies, and we don't see it a lot of times portrayed in television shows, but there's a real thing called black male friendship that I actually got to share an experience with him firsthand, and he did too. Um, and that was another big takeaway for me. A lot of times, like when people uh, are running to me and they'll, they'll run into him and they'll ask me, how did I raise him? And I, and I always answer, I, I really didn't. We grew up together. And so in the spirit of subliminal messages, I, I, what I wanted to do is perform one of the songs, and I, I took the liberty of taking all the subliminals out, but I actually wrote a verse to a song dedicated to him. Now, because of the acoustics in here, sometimes audiences want to clap and snap, 
and, and what that does, it throws me off beat. So let's wait to the end and, 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 then, we can, and then we can clap. Because <clears throat> I was told to rap it and not do the spoken word. You my all-time favorite blessing, hands down, no question. Your mom's effervescence and my essence. With a swag that's all your own. I've been your number one fan since the day you was born. Ain't gonna be there to the day that you grown and the day that I'm gone. And even after that, forever indeed like Pops to Rashid, Common to Lonnie Lynn, Matt Locke to Graysuits, Yahweh to Jesus. Is it crazy how I love you? Nah, the only thing that made sense on this planet in peril. And I ain't get that off the cards read by the tarot I'm not the best dad in the world I'm just trying to be thorough I used to tell folks my daddy was dead Cause that was easier than answering the question Where your daddy at then? And I promised back then if I ever became a daddy I'm never missing in action I forever got your back son Thank you Al Elliott teaches fifth grade literacy education, and you can learn more about him on Twitter or Instagram at Elocation. If you've enjoyed today's stories and want to hear more, first of all, of course, subscribe to this podcast. But secondly, make plans to come to one of our live events. We have one coming up in about a month on Friday, April 7th at the Birmingham Botanical Gardens in Birmingham, Alabama. And our theme for that event is going to be Roots, Stories About the Nature of the South. We are actually still looking for some storytellers for that event. So if you think you might have one that would be a good fit, we would love to hear from you. You can submit your story and get your tickets to the event all at our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places too, at Arc Stories. Be sure to follow us because we have some giveaways coming up. This podcast is produced by me and Arc Stories director, Taylor Robinson. Preston Lemmingood composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Aaron Moon, Leonard Lee Smith, Betsy Lee, Audra Whaley, and Nate Dreger for making this episode possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Speaking of which, I want to give a big shout out to iMathis for your recent review. And be sure to visit us online at arcstories.com. There you can listen to other stories, you can stay up to date with all of our events, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we're always asking, what's your story?